Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. A quick note about the foundation. Uh, We're embarking on our Anxiety and Depression Codex. It's a resource for people suffering from these conditions or people that know people that are suffering. Uh, The premise here is that if you go to an expert on anxiety and depression, they're likely to have two or three percent of all the possible treatments kind of in there, you know, on their wagon that they can help you with. What if we're able to go through thousands of disparate sources and assemble up to 20 percent of all the possible treatments for this condition? So find out more about this and about donating by going to FindingGeniusFoundation.org. And today my guest is Andre Marusik, PhD, is part of the Marusik Lab at the Moffitt Cancer Center. And we're going to talk about his research. So, Andrew, thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. Tell me about your research. What, uh, what are you working on in the world of cancer? Yeah, so we are interested in looking at cancer from the perspective of ecology and evolution, in particular, how cancers develop resistance to targeted or cytotoxic therapies. The, there's been enormous uh, accumulation of knowledge uh, of specific molecular mechanisms within reductionist paradigm. So we understand a lot about the genes and pathways that they control, but it sort of this gives kind of good practical, tactical tools, but it doesn't really, is this kind of knowledge is not sufficient to predict and understand how tumors will react when we start treating them and how they change. So we're trying to understand the the reason and logic underlying these changes. And to understand that requires really applying the uh, concepts from the fields of ecology and evolution to put some sort of foundation f- for this knowledge. And the idea that once we uh, have this understanding, we might be able to predict uh, more effective ways to interfere. So instead of waging only tactical battles, have more of a strategic plan of uh, how to deal with the disease. 
So what, what does that mean? What are you looking at in terms of uh, tumor environment, tumor metastasis, epithelial to mesenchymal transition? Like, what are you looking at? Specifically, you know, like we're, we're looking how tumors change in response to, to therapies. For example, uh, what my major focus uh, recently has been uh, understanding how targetable lung cancers uh, develop resistance to therapies. Uh, kind of good poster child example is uh, alt-positive lung cancers. Uh, we have drugs that are extremely effective in shrinking tumors and ga- gaining the short to medium time control over the disease. So we have patients that can uh, stay on the drug for months and years, but almost inevitably advanced cancer relapses at some point as tumors develop resistance. And uh, currently, most of the understanding how this happens is focused on specific uh, molecular uh, mechanisms, such as mutations that occur in the kinase pocket domain of the target of the drug, which basically prevent drug from binding and shutting down the target, or amplification of either primary target or alternative receptor tires and kinases that can provide bypass signaling. Or one thing that you've just mentioned, EMT, basically the idea that this transition towards a more plastic state might provide a pathway to resistance. Microenvironment, there is plenty of uh, evidence that microenvironment plays an an important role and it can at least partially desensitize tumor cells to the drug in some cases, even completely remove the sensitivity. And the thing is that uh, we are essentially focusing on one of these things at a time, but in reality, they are happening. All these mechanisms are operating at the same time when the same tumor cell populations and sometimes even in the same cells. So in order to make sense of what's going on, we are trying to basically figure out how do we consider all of these uh, factors together. And of course, there is, uh, it's unrealistic to consider everything. The point is to identify the major uh, sort of players, the major factors, and figuring out how to integrate their impact. And to do so, again, it's impossible to do it with just a linear uh, logic. So we're collaborating a lot with mathematical modelers from the Department of Integrative Mathematical Oncology here at Moffitt, where we're trying to create in silico models that describe the behavior of the tumors under treatment, where we basically make the model trying to recapitulate the reality as as realistically as possible, in, in, and not only to, to create a search of in silico version, but also challenge the predictions of the in silico models to see if they can produce uh, testable predictions that could allow us to either refine or validate the models. And realistically, we're not there yet. We're working in this direction. And while we're moving there, we're trying to address some of the uh, lower hanging fruits uh, within this sort of integration paradigm to to improve uh, therapies. For example, it's uh, well, it's known that microenvironment can protect tumor cells from the drug. And uh, we know that the cells oftentimes develop cell intrinsic resistance mechanisms. There's not much known about what is, how it is to interact. Like, wh- what is the fate of a sort of cell that has acquired uh, some partial intrinsic resistance? What does that yeah. mean, resistance? Resistance to what? To chemo or to Yeah, so right, right now... Uh, I'm talking primarily about the uh, resistance to targeted therapies, and actually a great qualifying uh, question. I should have been sort of more explicit. So in, in case of the targetable lung cancer, uh, you, ha- you have uh, sort of drugs that are taken in a pill form daily, uh, so they, kind of, they, they have relatively low toxicity, and so patients can 
can take this drug every day. And so it leads to kind of constant presence of the inhibitor in the, in the body and sort of leads to kind of continuous shutdown of the drug target. And it's quite different from the uh, chemotherapies that are the primary treatment for those cancers where targeted therapies are not available. And the chemotherapies is quite a different game. Because what does that mean, targeted therapy? Is so, it immune therapy uh, or what, what uh, is targeted about it? So the, the, the general idea that you have a drug that is uh, directed against a specific uh, molecular target. And so the, uh, the first sort of, and it can actually mean different things, but the primary application of the term is to indicate therapies directed against uh, oncogenic kinases. And the first targeted therapy that was successfully applied in clinics is uh, inhibitor of BCRA, Bulglevac, that enabled management of chronic, of, chronic, of CLL, CML chronic myelogenous leukemia. And basically this paradigm opened up a lot of research and which led to development of similar types of inhibitors in melanoma, BRAF inhibitors, in lung cancer, yeah, for EGFR, mutant lung cancer, you have uh, EGFR inhibitors such as zafitinib and now asimertinib is the frontline therapy. So basically the idea that the, the understanding of the molecular biology of the cancer cell enables to develop drug that specifically shut down uh, abnormal signaling nodes. And uh, if a cancer cell relies on the signaling, the idea that you can kill or stop tumor cells from proliferating and shrink the tumors and gain control over the tumors. Okay, so how does ecology and uh, evolution come into this? I mean, you're talking about specific mechanisms to inhibit, I guess, the activity of cancer cells, but uh, you alluded to the beginning that you're looking at it in a more comprehensive way, right? Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. So basically what happens with these great drugs, they get good clinical responses, but they ultimately fail. And there are sort of two components for it. One thing is that these therapies do not eliminate all of the tumor cells. So some tumor cells are capable of surviving and this reflects either their intrinsic properties. The problem is that tumor cells are not exactly identical. There's a phenomenon of intratumor heterogeneity where essentially cells in a tumor are like populations of, uh, of organisms where you have uh, individual to individual differences and these differences exist on both genetic level and, and epigenetic level. And there's also differences in the environment. So some tumor cells are close to, uh, say, uh, stromal niches where they can get some paracrine signals produced by non-tumor cells within the, uh, the tumor. And they can sort of get partial protection from the effect of the drug by the virtue of being close to, to these niches. So that's basically one aspect of the ecology. So it's kind of spatial heterogeneity and the importance of consideration of, of different environmental niches. There is also a kind of 
interactions between different tumor cell subpopulations. For example, so if a tumor cell starts producing a hepatocyte growth factor, this uh, leads to partial protection by activation and signaling an axis, but because this factor is produced uh, secreted outside of the cell, such a cell can protect not only itself, but its neighbor. So basically, this is consideration of ecology, basically interactions of cells within their environment as well with each other. And then the second part, if, if we could uh, we're just like cut the tumor down and re- retain control, it wouldn't be as bad. But the problem is that the surviving tumor cells can change over time. So then they can evolve to therapy-induced pressures. So part of this reflects mutational changes. So every time the tumor cell proliferates, it, it has a chance to get mutations in the, say, kinase pocket domain that would dramatically reduce sensitivity of the target to the drug. They can, uh, many other changes that can reduce sensitivity. But then on the other hand, in, in addition to these mutational stochastic changes, there's a strong evidence that tumor cells can directly respond to the drug in, in within more of a reprogramming paradigm where the cells with higher degree of plasticity can sort of readjust their phenotype, reprogram their phenotype in a way that puts them in a less uh, drug-sensitive state. Well, th- this is a question I've had for a lot of cancer interviewees. Do you see coordination of the cells that comprise the tumor so that the tumor acts as one or acts as a separate entity or acts as like a biofilm, you know, as in when bacteria come together? So the, I, I think that it's it's essential to to consider, again, the possibility of interactions and see whether we need to consider these uh, interactions. So, again, this is more of a for you know, ecological as, aspect of it. So oftentimes, if you have cells that are kind of interacting, forming cell-to-cell context, it becomes uh, more difficult to kill these cells compared to the cells that are dispersed. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. So again, I don't think that sort of the biofilm analogy is is kind of perfectly applicable, but to an extent, and then again, so it's not one size fits all, even though we have do, the same... T- do, yeah. do tumors, do tumors, all those cells of a tumor act together or do they not? Or do they only act together in certain circumstances in response to stress or niche construction? I mean, which which way do you see it? And that's kind of interesting, uh, the subject that is still kind of uh, a subject of, of debate among people who look into this thing. So on one hand, there is kind of good argument that tumor cells behave as a sort of kind of a Darwinian entity as units of selection, where basically it's, it's, uh, this vari- variability uh, within tumor cells uh, impact their probability of surviving and proliferating. But then on the other hand, again, it's, it's, there is also strong evidence that you cannot really fully understand the, the tumor unless you consider more kind of collective uh, behavior and interactions. So in the reality, uh, I think it, there is a need to, to, to consider both sort of the, both the Darwinian aspect of, uh, of it and also more of a kind of coordination. And of course, these are not mutually exclusive, but there is not kind of a proper way to really integrate this different angle. And this is kind of one of the challenges that we're trying to, to address. You know, if I think of my organs, my liver cells certainly act in concert. They don't act separately. And if a tumor, you know, some people say, well, very few. I mean, I think so. It's like a separate life form that acts, you know, on its own accord. But if it's not, and it's just our cells going rogue, then it's still our cells. And so, again, in our different tissues and organs, 
we see a lot of collective action. Liver cells don't just act on their own. So, I mean, why would it be so strange for a tumor to act on its own? You know, all the cells to act in concert to further the advancement of the tumor. So, touching, I think, extremely important point that is really not very well kind of conceptually developed. So, again, like I think it's it's uh, it's essential to consider both of this uh, of these things. So on, on one hand, I mean, there's kind of good uh, saying that sort of t- tumors are kind of caricatures of normal tissues, and so the, the t- uh, even sort of the trans- the generation of a tumor, it's it's not kind of like black and white switch. So you have uh, most tumors, at least at early stages, have kind of represent kind of ab- aberrant uh, forms of of normal tissues with kind of similar structural or the units. Uh, and then as, as the tumors progress toward uh, more dangerous, invasive uh, metastatic disease, usually there is a, at least some of these t- tissue characteristics are partially lost, but then they're not lost entirely. And so to, to understand the tumor behavior, you have to, uh, you know, one needs to still to account this this developmental program that can be executed within these tumor cells that basically reflect their normal Lean uh, tissue lineage heritage. On the other hand, you know, uh, you, you you also have the the Darwinian dynamics operating there, where again, like the tumor cells with certain phenotypic changes can have advantage over others with uh, and sort of take out the space and outcompete them and get expanded. And basically, this is essentially what's happening, or part of what's happening under therapy. So eventually, we're selecting tumor cells that are no longer sensitive to the drug and they can sort of thrive and proliferate even in the presence of the treatment. But to my understanding, it's not possible to completely account for what's going on by applying only this uh, competitive dynamics and looking at tumor cells as sort of individuals that act on their own. Are you trying to model it as if they act on their own or are you trying to model it from a Darwinian perspective or are you just observing these things? Like, What's your goal? So our goal, like, again, we're starting with experimental system where we're trying to have an open mind and figure out what is going on. And uh, so we start with sort of the simplest assumption and simplest models. And then uh, if sort of uh, if, if the reality of, uh, sort of trying to sort of set up the experiment uh, to address, can we explain the behavior of the, of the system with these simple assumptions? And basically, if the results tell otherwise then we have to revise uh, those assumptions and consider interactions between the subpopulations. For example, in one specific example, again, it's a simple experimental system where we culture uh, two types of tumor cells together and are setting up the, uh, essentially, uh, this is kind of the work, parental work of, of my collaborator, great uh, scientist, physician, mathematician, Jake Scott from Cleveland Clinic, and Artem Kaznachev, his uh, students were basically trying to kind of infer the existence or lack thereof of interactions between these two types of tumor cells from the observable experimental setup, and then basically try to sort of understand the nature of interaction, not on the molecular level, but on the level of, of, uh, of the impact of, of, coexisting, of, of coexistence of these cells, whether uh, in, together they behave differently compared to sort of some of the parts when these cells are, are separate. What have, you, what have you been able to figure out about tumor behavior? Anything yet, or is it still early in your investigation? Like what, what interesting insights have you gotten? In sort of the experimental system where we spent most of our uh, attention, there are a couple of very interesting things that uh, we have found out. So 
sort of we started again looking at how tumor cells develop resistance to ALK inhibitors, and this is one of the uh, targeted therapies that is administered continuously, very effective, but eventually failing and, and metastatic advanced cancers. So uh, usually people are thinking of resistance as reflecting a single change, so either it's a mutational change or change in expression of certain gene or EMT, et cetera. And so we found actually that one, we cannot, exp- so we, we, we have this experimental system where we can, can get quite predictably the, the tumors, uh, the tumors population of tumor cells in vitro or in vivo eventually develop resistance within a meaningful time frame. Uh, and what we found is that we cannot really explain this resistance uh, with any single mechanism. Instead, resistance appears to reflect a combined output of multiple uh, individual changes. Some of these changes are induced by the drug and other changes are stochastic and they and can act in additive and synergistic ways. And so this is kind of, uh, I think, a very important observation that some people have made before, but without, I think, paying due attention to it, because I think it has a profound implication. So, for example, one of the problems with these uh, relapsing tumors is that despite all of the research, uh, all, of the, uh, all of the papers that look at the resistance mechanism, typically once the tumor starts relapsing, even if you target this mechanism that is associated with resistance, in most cases you get like very transient response. And a part of it is that the, the, the tumors are heterogeneous. You might sort of suppress a subpopulation of cells with this targeted mechanism, but then the other cells can grow out. But where our uh, result uh, suggests that, that it's that if you have multiple mechanisms that give rise to resistance and you take one out, even if it's a dominant one, you still have cells that are more robust than the treatment naive cells. And so they'll have easier time figuring out uh, alternatives compared to if they have to start from the square one. So this is kind of, this is one recent discovery that I have, that I think should have, would have a profound implication of, of how tumors uh, develop resistance. Another thing. What, 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 is, yeah. what does that mean? Like, what, I don't understand. What are you looking at? With the, are you specifically targeting cells that have been changed in a particular way and biopsying them and seeing their pathway changes? Or I don't so, know how this plays in. And and, and that that paper uh, that that study that I'm referring to published it recently in uh, Nature Communication Journal. So they, in that in that case, we're looking at cells uh, in vitro. So we start with therapy naive cells, the cells that haven't seen the drug. And then we're looking at how they respond to different clinically relevant drugs that are that that inhibit this key oncogenic change that defines these these cells. And so what we're finding that consistently, so the cells can develop uh, resistance to any of the four different inhibitors that we are have been testing. And because this is an in vitro study, we can actually sample and look at the different time points, looking how tumor cells change. Uh, not only looking at the before and after, but also looking at the intermediate stages. And so initially, again, we did not uh, start the project expecting to see this complex multifactorial resistance. We started by identifying the what are the known resistance mechanisms that we can see in resistant cells. And uh, we found instead of one, we found multiple ones. And like knocking out any one of those couldn't really fully restored the sensitivity to the uh, original. But when we started kind of combining things, we see now uh, the evidence that basically resistance is reflects 
contribution of multiple individual uh, molecular changes rather than a a single a single factor. Well, is there a predominance to the changes? Like, how would you characterize the changes that occur in a tumor? Is it, and is this before and after chemo, or again under what conditions? It just sounds a bit general. I don't understand. Yeah. So in this uh, again, this is where we're dealing with targeted therapy that is applied continuously. So in in context of in in vitro studies, we're basically putting a drug into the uh, media, and then basically we replenish the media twice per week and we're adding sort of a new drug with new media. So basically the tumor cells are exposed to to kind of essentially continuous uh, presence of the drug. And so what we're seeing immediately as soon as you add the drug within a couple of hours, you have uh, some of the tumor cells start dying, other tumor cells arrest their proliferation, uh, but then like over time they can better and better and better until they get to the point where they can uh, ignore the drug. So, but as early as like within four hours, but we hit them with the drug, we already see changes in genes like HER2 and EGFR, and these are alternative receptor tyrosine kinases, and their expression can uh, can make the tumor cells less sensitive. And and so because there's uh, this change happens so fast that cannot really reflect. Uh, a Darwinian dynamic sort of variability and selection. So this is a an example of direct drug-induced response of the tumor cells. And it looks like not all of the tumor cells are capable of making these changes, but those tumor cells that can make this change, they would they're capable of at least hanging there for some uh, time. And then and then we have, we'll look sort of further down the line, we see now kind of expansion of like, certain cell populations that carry out certain you know, stochastic uh, changes such as amplification of the original target uh, AML4 out where now in crizotinib, one of the drugs we're seeing uh, that inevitably we see an expansion of tumor cells that have this uh, target amplification. And uh, in the literature, it's considered that this target amplification can confer resistance to the drug. And so if a clinician sees uh, that the tumor became sort of resistant tumor, has multiple copies of ML4-ALK, the conclusion is that, okay, so this uh, amplification has conferred resistance, but basically what we're finding is that by itself, it cannot fully uh, explain the resistance. We can artificially recapitulate this scenario of ML4 amplification by integrating additional copies of the oncogene into the cells using lentiviruses. And we are seeing that uh, despite phenocopying the signaling effect of the endogenously observed amplification, these cells are only weakly resistant. And it sort of takes this additional changes, some of which are stochastic and some of which are induced to get to the full degree of resistance. So basically getting to resistance is a process. It's a trajectory rather than a simple on and off switch that can be conferred by a single mutation. How do you know a change is stochastic or directed? So, and and, and this sort of example, so if we see change as early as like four hours uh, out of the treatment, and at this point, it's it's a time scale that is too small for cells to proliferate where you have rare subpopulation that expands, it's sort of clear that this is an example of induced response. However, for mutational changes, if you're talking about the point mutation in the uh, kinase pocket domain or gene amplification, I think there's uh, basically there's like decades and decades of research that uh, clearly show that these kind of changes are are stochastic. They're more rare. They're not really directional, but they can have a profound uh, impact on the 
sensitivity of tumor cells. So every time that a cell divides uh, in the process of DNA replication, uh, you have dozens of, point, of small scale point mutations. And most of these point mutations don't really matter. So the probability of mutation of specific nucleotide is, is very low. But then if you have large population of cells and many rounds of proliferation, eventually you will get some of these mutations to, uh, to pop up. And it was essentially the basis of the mathematical argument that there that resistance must pre-exist in the tumor cells before the treatment. But basically, we're, what we're seeing that even if we do have these uh, mutations pre-existing, they're not fully resistant and they, they, the cells have to acquire additional changes to, to gain the full extent of resistance. Also, their ability to get there is cannot be fully understood if you only focus on these cells. You have to consider the environment and the effect of, of competition with other cells. For example, if you have uh, the treatment that uh, kind of completely eliminate all the tumor cells that only have this intrinsically resistant cells, these cells can expand and take over the tumor very quickly. However, back to this phenomenon of microenvironmental resistance, we're seeing that if there are enough uh, tumor cells that survive, not because they're intrinsically resistant to these uh, tumors, but they're because they are in the proper niches, the, the intrinsically resistant cell still has to kind of outcompete those other tumor cells to expand and take over. And this is basically goes to this aspect of importance of, of, inter, of integration of, of multiple levels of consideration. We have to uh, think about both this induced epigenetic changes, about stochastic mutational changes, about the microenvironment, about the impact of competition between different tumor cells uh, within the tumor. Is there a way to design an experiment so that you can see what is a deliberate adaptation versus a stochastic one? It doesn't seem like there is any stochastic stuff. I mean, it seems like adaptation that can lead to maladaptation, therefore it's not successful or it can be successful. Well, I think there's but, kind of very, very strong evidence that the mutations are, are stochastic, whether you're talking about the chromosomal amplification, amplification of piece of, of segment of DNA or specific point mutations. So these are stochastic changes. But how can they be if, if, if they reoccur in a given cancer? You know, not all of them, but I'm sure a, a vast majority of them reoccur and have been characterized for a given so, so cancer. If, so if, um, but this is kind of more of a kind of basic Darwinian uh, you know, if you If you're dealing with low probability events, but that you have a population consisting of, of, of millions of cells, and then every time the, the cell replicate their DNA, there is a chance of this mutation uh, occurs and so if the mutation occurs and it gives the cell a fitness advantage, it would be amplified by selection. So this cell would have either sort of, uh, they will expand at the sort of expense of those tumor cells that don't have this adaptation. And so basically, that that is the reason where we we are seeing this recurrent mutation is not that it's a reflection of a directed response, but because like if you have even low probability event, but in large enough population over time, some cells would acquire these mutational events. And if these mutational events confer substantial advantage, uh, they will, the, the cells... No, that's, the, that's, the, that's what everyone says about Darwinian evolution. But again, cancers appear to have tropisms for certain tissues. Even though they're heterogeneous, they still seem to have a common set of what we call mutations. So if that's happened thousands and tens of thousands of times over various cancers, it, it uh, seems like a directed thing, even though it may be... 
beneficial or not beneficial for the tumor. But I mean, if well, it recurs, you know, why would it be random? Again, like sort of, we're, if we're talking about sort of tropism to, to different tissue, you look at sort of the kind of more of a, a global phenotype. So they kind of, in every sort of cell in a normal tissue, in order sort of to survive and proliferate, it needs to receive certain signals from the environment, basically interactions with the neighboring cell, interactions with extracellular matrix, uh, certain growth factors, uh, if you don't have the signal, the cells either arrest or uh, arrest their proliferation and, and die depending on what cell type you are. If you're talking about hematopoietic cell, the default response is suicide. If you're talking about structural cells like fibroblasts, the default response is getting into arrest. Uh, so, uh, you know, and, and tumor cells, even though they are abnormal, they retain at least partially dependence on this growth factor. And that's why like, in order to grow tumor cells in culture, we have to provide them with uh, FBS uh, fetal bovine serum to provide these growth factors that enable tumor cells to, to proliferate and grow. And then if a cell gets into a different uh, organ, now it's uh, like facing very different uh, context and it doesn't rec necessarily recognize uh, the new environmental system. And so in some uh, tissues, the context might be sort of the closer to or more similar to to adapt to compare to, to other uh, systems. And in this case, again, like adaptation, you cannot fully understand it from the sort of stochastical Darwinian dynamics, but it, it is part of the answer. And a part of the answer is, another part of the answer is just the ability of cells to recognize certain thing and sort of rewire itself towards phenotypic state that would enable it to kind of exist in this new environment. It's kind of the term that's uh, referred to as, as phenotypic plasticity. But back to your sort of argument that because we're seeing recurrent mutations in cancer, it cannot be stochastic. One thing is that even if you look at the same type of cancer, they are basically, uh, these things are probabilistic. So it, it's not that in every cancer, like lung cancer, you have EGFR mutation and ALK mutation or RAS mutation. There are uh, tumors with, with one set of mutation. And then if you take another tumor, you wouldn't be identical. So it'd be kind of a different set of mutation. The, the end effect would be similar. But, that, but that's what yeah. I'm saying is maybe that's how you know something is stochastic or not, is the core set. I'm guessing it's probably 80% of the mutations of a given cancer show up multiple times or many, many times. So I would yes. think a vast majority of them are not stochastic because they show up over and over and over. But maybe there's a small subset, a minority that do that are stochastic. But again, well, like, I, you know, it's I, not like I have a... In all of time, for instance, you know, there's been, let's say, 120 billion people and they've all pretty much had a liver. You know, that's you, you can never say that's a stochastic thing. No, but like, liver, so again, you, you start with, with, with the liver. So, I mean, why is, is it different, though? Why isn't there stochasticity in creating livers or hearts or, you know, that produces uh, something different? I mean, well, it's, it, maybe there's a little bit of minority, but in, in tumors, again, like what, what do you think the percentage of? Deliberate versus, uh, you know, random changes. Uh, well, I, I'm not sure, like, if it's kind of a meaningful, if I can give meaningful answer about sort of percentages. I can sort of say with confidence that basically the, the, there are some of the changes that are more of a kind of de deliberate or sort of kind of programmed, uh, the kind of where it's sort of part of the cellular identity to respond to certain stimulus in a certain direction. Uh, but other uh, things, kind of, in New York sort of liver example, it's not that you have people without liver and then like it can appear out of nowhere stochastically. But in case of specific uh, mutational events, okay, you start with like normal one uh, deployed genome, sorry, two copy of, or if say like genomic loci that contains uh, RAS gene. And then 
if you have sort of cells where uh, that, uh, so basically in, in, in order to get more copies, it requires an additional event, uh, something sort of to, to happen that is different from the default. And so it could happen two ways. One thing, just it, it happens stochastically, randomly with certain probability. And then if that event gives a, an advantage, the cell could, could expand and you would start seeing this uh, more often if, if the event gives advantage. If it's a directionally, you would expect that all tumors would show up with, with this uh, amplification. And actually, in, uh, in, in, in our studies, there was like a very interesting observation where in context of uh, cells that develop resistance to lorlatinib third generation ALK inhibitor, we're seeing that their kind of and global phenotypes are fairly similar and different from cells that develop resistance to, to electinib or say crizotinib. But this, and, and in most of these cells, we're seeing evidence of uh, RAS amplification, but in some cells, we see amplification of KRAS, and in other, in other cells, we see amplification of NRAS. So this is kind of an example of a convergent evolution. So you have different stochastic event events that basically lead to similar phenotypes. So one in one sort of biological replicate, where I assume that we have dealt sort of with rare event that produced the additional copy of, of NRAS, and this having additional copy of NRAS gave the cells that acquired this event of advantage and enabled it to expand and take over the, the population. And in other case, uh, the stochastic uh, event was in sort of Paralog, but a different gene that gave a similar phenotypic impact. And so this kind of observation of, of the convergent uh, evolution, uh, I think, is uh, provides a fairly strong uh, indication that we're dealing with, with stochastic events that can be triaged by and discriminated by selection. And then experimentally, what we can do and what we are doing is that we can introduce additional copy of say like RAS or EML for ALK and, and basically see if we have the, if we induce just this change, how does the cell fare compared to the cells without this change? Is it, uh, does it give advantage? Does it give disadvantage? And basically what we're seeing is that uh, the, the, the extent of the advantage that is given by these changes oftentimes depends sort of on the history of the cell. So if you give certain things at the beginning, for example, if you give EML4-ALK amplification at the beginning of treatment with lorlatinib, it appears to, if anything, gives a disadvantage to the cells, but then at some point, the, the same uh, event can provide an advantage. And so basically, it just tells that, that the same kind of molecular event is evaluated by selection, and the impact is dependent on the sort of what is the starting uh, point of, of, of a cell where the, the change has occurred. I hope it might it makes sense, but I'm not sure if we're out of time. But what's what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? It's a good question. I don't know. We we have a, we have a brief description on our labs uh, website. Periodically, trying to write just not just uh, research papers, but opinions, perspective, or describe our sort of our inferences and uh, sort of the implications of what we find experimentally. And I think that would be a a, a be- probably the best. Uh, place to find. And of course, this is not it's more of a kind of for scientific colleagues, audiences, and actually this pod, podcast, I, I thought would be kind of an opportunity to really explain a little bit uh, more of what we're doing. But I'm not sure, like, I, I sort of succeeded there because we quickly get into a little bit of a deep... Uh, I think we deep... got into uh, some important details. I mean, you know, I don't think it's... Uh, I think it worked well. Yeah, thank you. But I mean, it's 
it's kind of we're dealing with sort of the ideas that are not necessarily kind of on the surface and so i understand sort of uh, even mm-hmm. explaining things it, it takes you know, like to scientific colleagues it oftentimes takes sort of multiple time sitting together and going over different pieces until sort of uh, kind of a more kind of clear picture emerges yeah it's okay no problem Andrew. i think it was good and thank you for coming on the podcast well thank you for having me if you like this podcast please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.